Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's Star Wars Day. Today's date marks a global holiday, thanks to fans who delight in saying, May the 4th be with you. Their pun on the iconic words from the film, May the Force be with you. Much of the success of Star Wars is due to master composer John Williams. And today, we'll celebrate with our own Yoda of movie music, WABE contributor Dr. Scott Stewart. Later this hour, he'll share his Star Wars expertise and soundtrack highlights. First... The Midtown Alliance connects artists to the community through its Heart of the Arts initiative. Now there's a new phase of the project with artists in residence. Lauren Bone is the program manager. She joins us now via Zoom with two of the artists, Kristen Wolford and Melissa Huang. Welcome to City Lights. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Heart of the Arts launched its first phase in December with art installations in seven vacant storefronts throughout Midtown. Midtown is already home to more than 50 public art installations. Its connection to creativity and artistic expression is already well established. Lauren, how have these installations and this initiative in particular expanded and enhanced the experience of being in Midtown? Thank you, Lois. As you've mentioned, Midtown Alliance has experience with public art. It's been a part of our mission and operations. And we really view this as an exciting next step in that it allows us to really, A, create a sense of being in an arts district by putting artwork directly at the street level, like we did with our storefront installations. But moving into this next phase of an artist residency, we're creating space for artists to work in our neighborhood and and really kind of trying to lower the barriers for artists to 
bring their creative work to our district and, and importantly, be a part of the Midtown community. Hmm. Melissa, you painted a vibrant mural for your window installation, and the mural depicts you and your sister laughing with each other. Would you tell us about your relationship with your sister and how that informs this painting? Absolutely, Lois. So this mural focuses on the relationship between myself and my sister, Tori. She's my older sister, and... I've looked up to her my entire life. I've always been able to rely on her and that hasn't changed during the pandemic. She's living in Denver and I'm living here in Atlanta. And it has been really hard for us to not be able to see each other for such a long period of time, especially since she recently had her first child, which was a really big event for the entire family. And we've been communicating more than ever which was a little surprising. We've been Zooming and FaceTiming and texting. And, you know, this mural was a way of celebrating the fact that we are still still having this wonderful relationship that is now existing in a digital landscape. (laughs) Yeah, we have to be grateful for this digital universe in the way it's keeping us connected and somewhat offsetting the loneliness of isolation from relatives during COVID. Kristen, you created a digital montage on display at 999 Peachtree. Your entire body of work as a filmmaker and experimental multimedia artist encourages deeper understanding of Black experiences in America. What themes are explored in color waves? Yes, for me, uh, color waves is all about uh, representation, showing Black bodies in a very large-scale way, and not just showing them, but showing them in a way that's uplifting and even empowering. A lot of times in my work, you know, I, I do try to force, if you will, us to confront, you know, the darker sides of our history in America when it comes to to being Black and what that experience has been like. But Color Waves, for me, was an opportunity to, to show a different side, you know, show Black bodies doing things that to some people may be mundane, but for a lot of people I know, you know, it's considered self-care and a way to to keep going, to stay motivated, to, to keep moving forward, even though uh, the circumstances that we're in right now you know, with coronavirus, with, you know, all the police brutality and just all the, the number of things that come along with being Black in this country and trying to survive. But we're still out here and we're still thriving, if you will. So I just wanted to show that through my art. And, and also there is a, a sound component as well, which feeds into that idea of um, resisting and still being, uh, you know, present and still defining our own narratives. My Angelou comes to mind with Still I Rise. Yeah, that, I would say that that's definitely uh, uh, relevant. The, the song that actually plays is Sam Cooke. It's uh, A Change Is Gonna Come. And I, uh, I'm part of a steel pan band, actually. And I got the leaders of it to uh, put together a rendition of that to, to go along with the piece to, again, get back to this idea of you know, staying hopeful and uplifted. You know, despite what we might see around us and some of the experiences that we're, we're going through. 
your installation as a video almost mirrors the movement of city life. People walking, cyclists buzzing by, cars crawling along in traffic, even during COVID. Would you tell us what you hope the ecosystem of Midtown gains from interacting with your art? I think it depends on your perspective and your background when you interact with the piece, you know, depending on where you see yourself in Midtown, you know, that's kind of going to determine how you interact with it. If you're Black, for me, like I know my friends, when they see it, they're like, oh my God, like just amazed to see uh, Blackness, you know, represented in that way in such a large scale with so much beauty. Um, so for for people that, you know, look like me and come from my community, it, it's very much so affirming, you know, just our existence. Um, if you're somebody who maybe isn't Black, you know, I, I'm hopeful that you can appreciate, you know, the different colors that are there you know, just appreciating the beauty of it, of the piece in itself. I spent a lot of time looking at Matisse and his color palettes and just trying to, to find the one that I felt, or the, the, the couple of color palettes, I guess you could say, that I felt that when you see it, you know, it makes you feel a little bit of color therapy. It makes you feel happy. It makes you feel a little bit of joy. And so those were the elements that were at play. And in the piece itself, it's showing a beach, which is something that I'm, I'm almost positive all of us here in Atlanta, especially, you know, we're, we're landlocked. We have no water around us. So just being able to be in an ex immersive experience of like being in a beach, you know, just that feeling alone is something that's positive and will um, hopefully make, make you feel good about yourself. Oh, yes. I, I love what you um, referenced about Matisse's palette as color therapy. Is, is there such a thing? I'm a believer in it. You know, I, I do believe that colors have different frequencies and literally just looking at a combination of colors, the frequencies that come from those colors, they, they hit differently. You know, it's not all that much different from music, I would say. Different chords resonate differently with you just from hearing them or even just being near them and feeling the vibrations. That's something that I was, again, I've never done it before, but I was playing around with it. Um, in this piece, and I, and I think it translates, hopefully. I think it translates well. I love hearing you explain this, and as one who is not a visual artist, nor was I trained in anything related to it, I have always reacted first and foremost to color in art, and Matisse may be my all-time favorite. So I feel very validated from your telling me this, Krista. <laughs> I mean, like I said, I'm just going off of what I feel. Uh, you know, I would love to go to art school one day. If somebody wants to to fund that initiative, I, I would totally do it and really get into it and study. But, you know, just sometimes it doesn't have to get that deep. You know, I just feel like however art makes you feel, you know, like I said, very similar to music. You know, that's it's, it is valid. It, it is meaningful. It has something behind it. There's a, a truth to it. So. I, I, uh, I'm glad you're feeling that. The conversation about storefronts and art at street level in the heart of the city reminds me of something I read about the Parisian concept of flannery, strolling or wandering almost aimlessly with the sole purpose of experiencing life in the city, of observing and relating. Lauren, how does the Heart of the Arts Initiative encourage people to slow down and spend more time exploring? 
exploring what's around us simply for the sake of curiosity and discovery. I'm so glad you asked that, Lois. You know, walkability is really Midtown's calling card. My uh, CEO, Kevin Green, likes to remind us of our ongoing goal of happy people on foot, which is just a really distilled way to speak to the, the life and the vibrancy that happens at the street level. And it's really key to everything that we do. And so when we um, first displayed these installations um, at the end of last year in the middle of the pandemic and you know everything felt different. And so this was really an urgent response for us to put that, to put those colors and to put that vibrancy at the street level and encourage people to stroll through the district and discover and, um, you know, just happen upon something new that they haven't seen in the same building they walk past on a daily basis. And for us, it was really fun for these installations to premiere around the same time as our holiday lights installation. We really, you know, dialed up the call to action to en encourage Midtowners to, to explore and, and wander around and, and just reminding that, you know, walking the streets of, of Midtown will always be a, a healthy, pandemic-friendly way to have fun. An aim of the Heart of the Arts Initiative is indeed highlighting local artists who are new to Midtown. Melissa, you moved to Atlanta just a few years ago to pursue your MFA at Georgia State University. How did your perspective as a relative newcomer to Atlanta and to the Atlanta art scene shape your contribution? Yeah, that's a great question, Lois. I am very new to Atlanta, and it has been an absolute pleasure getting to know the city. Coming as somewhat of an outsider, I was really impressed with how, how much the arts community in Atlanta has to offer and particularly how many opportunities there are for support in creating new work and in sharing new work with the public. And I think for me, because I was very new to Midtown, that newness to the Midtown area did shape my contribution. I considered how I felt coming into Midtown, seeing all of the hustle and bustle, seeing how lively that area of the city is in creating my piece and considering the color palette and considering how to portray movement throughout the, the mural and the other painted elements. So definitely it came in technically and conceptually. Kristen, as a native Atlantan, what does it mean to you to have your art on display in the heart of the city? It means everything to me. I mean, only recently would I even like look at myself as an artist. And um, in a lot of ways, Midtown has has helped me to to kind of realize that about myself. You know, growing up, I, I was very much so focused on just the books, if you will, and extracurricular activities like sports would would kind of be secondary. But I never really uh, played that much around, I guess you could say, with expressing myself creatively. So to go from seeing myself in one way and then all of a sudden getting this, you know, almost you know overwhelming amount of support to to show um, and express myself has been has been huge. I can talk to friends that I grew up with and they and they're you know asking me like you know when when did you you know when did you, when did you start doing this like how did you how did you get into that you know and I'm just kind of speechless like it's just the city you know what I'm saying like Atlanta keeps showing me love so I just keep I keep creating it's really been a blessing and I'm so appreciative 
Melissa, how do public art installations, even temporary installations such as those you've created for Heart of the Arts, how do these contribute to your growth and success as an artist? Well, this project has already given me a lot of really positive exposure. Career-wise, it has already been helpful. I've had other people reach out about mural projects, which has been really exciting. Before this, I had never done a public installation before. And just the process of making making this temporary installation, having to think a little bit more about space and about how the public would perceive this artwork as part of their day-to-day lives versus seeing it on the wall of a gallery or you know, share it on my Instagram page. It really changes the perception of, of the work. And, you know, I've been bringing that into some newer pieces, thinking more about using space in my work and how that can play a larger role. Heart of the Arts is entering its second phase with the creation of a year-long residency program for Atlanta-based artists, as we mentioned. Lauren, would you tell us about the kinds of opportunities resident artists will be able to access through this initiative? Melissa touched upon just the awareness that the program brings to artists. That's right. So the residency program is set up to be a one-year residency. We'll be able to accept four artists in our first year, but have big plans to grow it from there. And so as a part of that, the artist will have free workspace in the Midtown District for a year to um, continue their creative practices. But also, we really want to think about how can we support these artists as business owners, right? Um, How can they continue their creative enterprise here in Midtown? Um, And what does it mean to create artwork in close proximity to all of our, our wonderful arts and culture anchors? So that's one part we're thinking about is how we can support these artists in their current career level, Um, but also thinking about how do we connect those artists with our community members? And so as a part of the, the residency program, we'll have a public display of the artist's work, as well as some ongoing opportunities for community-based programming so that Midtown can really get to know the artists that are here and, and become engaged with, with their work. Is the residency geared more toward one specific medium, or are artists from all media encouraged to apply? In our initial year, it is going to be focused more towards visual-based artists. That's really, you know, just for us to kind of take the first steps into in a brand new arts residency program that we've we've never done before. But we do have big plans to grow this program in the very near future to include all types of creative disciplines at numerous spaces all over the Midtown District. Phase two is about to get underway, but phase one isn't over yet. How much longer will the installations be on display in Midtown? And and where can we see them? 
Yeah, so we still have six of the seven storefront installations on display. We asked our original host sites to please keep them up through March, but actually we're able to keep them up a bit longer. I couldn't tell you exactly how long they'll be up because, you know, I think that's part of the nature of a, of a storefront. Ultimately, many of these spaces are going to be leased to, to new retail, which, which is also a good thing for our district. But thankfully, our partners are, are willing to keep the artwork up a little bit longer. So we're going to try to keep all of that information on the on Midtown Alliance's page for the Heart of the Arts. So um, we'll keep that information fresh there. I want to make sure also not to lose track. So for phase two, we do have our application open now for the arts residencies, but not for long. That Our application closes on May 7th. So I would be remiss if I didn't make one quick little plug there. Well, I'm glad you added that. Lauren Bone, thank you for all that Midtown Alliance does to connect artists to the community. Kristen Wolford and Melissa Huang, thank you for showing us how artists can just make everything better. Thank you, Lois. This has been great. And thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Lois. This has been a real pleasure. Lauren Bohm, Program Manager for Midtown's Heart of the Arts, with filmmaker and multimedia artist Kristen Wolford and painter Melissa Huang. The Phase 2 application deadline for the program is this Friday. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Star Wars Day, may the 4th be with you. Today there are worldwide virtual celebrations of one of the most influential and best-loved movie franchises of all time. Much of the success of Star Wars is due to master composer John Williams, who has written over 18 hours of music for these nine movies, not to mention the ever-expanding library of prequels, sequels, and spin-offs, our own repository of wisdom and knowledge, although he's far more handsome, our own Yoda of movie music, 
WABE music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart is with us to share some Star Wars soundtrack highlights. Scott, welcome back, and may the fourth be with you. And also with you, Lois. It's so great to be here. Thank you so much. I never pass up a chance to listen to or talk about the music of John Williams. There's really no more influential composer in the world today. And it's safe to say that anyone listening has always had John Williams somewhere in their musical life. On Star Wars Day, May the 4th, it's appropriate that we give a huge amount of credit to John Williams for the success of all of these movies. When film music after World War II had kind of moved away from the symphonic model of the 1930s, jazz and pop scores became the dominant model for film scoring. Plus, it generated a lot of revenue from album sales and from drawing a youth market into the movie theaters. But when we get up to the 1970s, there was a gradual return to this large Hollywood orchestra and the romantic film score sound. And John Williams was at the forefront of this movement, making big splashes with Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Jaws and, of course, Star Wars in 1977. Today, we're enjoying any of the Star Wars movies, prequels or sequels, all those nine movies at the click of a button, even on our phones. But we're also seeing the evolution of the Star Wars universe in feature films, in live action streaming, and animation formats. With all these spin-offs come different approaches to musical scoring. And so today, I thought we would visit both old and new Star Wars music. Mm. Now, among the growing collection of Star Wars spin-off series is Solo, a Star Wars story, released by Disney in 2018. This is the origin tale of the rogue hero Han Solo, starring Alden Ehrenreich. Production was hampered by creative team conflicts, eventually resulting in the firing of the directors and film editor, John Powell, well-known for his scores for the Jason Bourne and How to Train Your Dragon series, was brought on as composer for the project early on. And talk about two amazing composers uh, that are working today in the industry, John Powell and John Williams. Han Solo never received a leitmotif or character theme in the original Star Wars trilogy. So for Solo, a Star Wars story, John Williams himself provided the original theme in the album's opening cue entitled The Adventures of Han. Thank you. 
This is one of the only John Williams character themes in the Star Wars storyline in the meter of three, which I think is kind of interesting. And it's also one of the only ones that spends the majority of its harmonic life in a minor or darker sounding key. There's clearly a heroic portion, and I guess I might characterize it as a little bit roguish heroic. And uh, another section of this theme is more action oriented. Scott, it intrigues me what you said about Han Solo himself never receiving a light motive character theme in the Star Wars trilogies. Is it possible they thought his character would be killed off? I'm not sure what the, this is a George Lucas brain question. (laughs) And we know that George Lucas had an original plan, but the second Star Wars came out, he started revising Star Wars. And so there are so many iterations and little branches of the Star Wars story. But we clearly get themes for Luke. We get themes for Leia. We have uh, developing Empire themes. And by the time we get to Empire Strikes Back, the, the really great Imperial March. But there are characters like R2-D2 and C-3PO and Han Solo and Chewbacca that never really got musical treatment directly. So I think it's an interesting question, and maybe we should call George and see what he has to say about it. Oh, well, uh, clearly you've got him on speed dial. John Powell, that composer, was given the daunting task of integrating John Williams' Han theme as well as providing his own material for the majority of the soundtrack. Yeah, and can you imagine getting that little contract? I I heard John Powell in an online interview describing his navigation of the music of John Williams while John Williams was kind of (laughs) looking over his shoulder. He described it like walking through a minefield with clown (laughs) shoes on. What a great visual (laughs) comparison. One of the beloved cues from the first Star Wars movie, that is, number four, from 1977, is the TIE Fighter attack. Our heroes have escaped from the Death Star and are fending off Imperial attacks in the Millennium Falcon. The cue is initiated by Princess Leia's warning cry, Here they come! Yeah, and this was one of the first ship-to-ship battles in all of the Star Wars series. And John Williams really sets the tone for all of these great action sequences that would come over the next 40 years. He scores this dogfight with rapid tempos, really punchy rhythms, and masterful use of brass and timpani fanfares.
that's the TIE Fighter attack from 1977. Now, fast forward to 2018, when John Powell was creating action sequences for Solo. He viewed some of the rough footage and was reminded of footage from Star Wars in 1977 and decided to weave John Williams's TIE Fighter attack themes into a cue that he called reminiscence therapy. And here's John talking about that experience. There'll be moments where you hear what I call reminiscence therapy, which is there's we lifted bits of film, uh, bits of the original films. There's a few scenes where we visually it was it was uh, giving me these kind of uh, memories of the film. So I just took the music and I and we put them in. <laughs> so it's, it's it's a couple of bits that are lifted straight out of it. And I've done, you know, some of it's absolutely as it was, and some of it I hyped up a bit and. People might hate that. They might like it. I don't know. Um, the idea was to get the main criteria that I worked to was is to get flow, and mm. that's what he has. I think he has this. It's always flowing forward. Um, it's not just pulsing forward like most of the scores that we have to do these days. Um, it flows forward, I and mean, it's much harder to do. Um, it takes a lot more technique, I think. The result is an amazing fusion of John Williams and John Powell. Unmistakable quotations from 1977, but the hyped up and reframed version that has the John Powell energy and lift that we recognize from How to Train Your Dragon and so many of his other hit scores. Always impressed with John Powell's use of percussion, adding both rhythmic drive and some really interesting musical timbres or colors. There's a hint of Jason Bourne energy in here and that forward motion that keeps viewers leaning forward in their seats at the theater. any introduction needed that was the imperial march or darth vader's theme composed by john williams for the second film in this series the empire strikes back 
in 1980. Oh, and we mustn't forget Dark Helmet from Spaceballs. Yes, one of the one of the classics, Pizza the Hut and Dark Helmet. Yeah, this was a brilliant move by director George Lucas and composer John Williams to flesh out a theme that was not in the first movie, but it brought a little bit of weight and uh, kind of sort of the empire now has the upper hand vibe <laughs> and all of these major themes from a new hope the fourth movie were incorporated into the empire strikes back except for what is called the imperial motif it's kind of a a campy or kitschy fragment that worked okay, but wasn't super serious. And then it got co-opted by Dr. Evil in the Austin Powers films. And it's radio. I know this is not very effective, but I do have my pinky now resting on my chin when I say <laughs> Dr. Evil. The Imperial March is one of the most recognizable iconic themes in the entire Star Wars pantheon of character themes, but it was not too sacred for John Powell to riff on in Solo. No, it wasn't. It appeared in one of my favorite fall-out-of-my-movie-seat moments. John Powell provided underscoring for the movie within the movie. Uh, this is the Empire's propaganda recruitment video. And the technique was to change the mode of the melody from minor, a very you know familiar, dark and menacing version that we're used to, to a much cheerier major mode, which sounds like it fell off the desk of English composer Edward Elgar after he wrote all those pop and circumstance marches. <laughs> well, John Powell is British he after is all. so British. <laughs> Okay, so there you have it. <laughs> Changing modes from major to minor or minor to major for a kind of musical plot twist is really nothing new. Classical and jazz and pop composers have altered the scales on which their tunes are based to create humor and satire and irony for many years. This is actually the reverse operation of what the Romantic era composer Gustav Mahler did in the third movement of his symphony number no. one. In it, he takes the song we know as the French folk tune Frère Jacques, which in German is Bruder Martin, Brother Martin. And Mahler keeps it in the round form, but he switches it from this sweet childlike tune in a major mode to a grotesque, you know, a twisted and dark minor mode. I remember this movement affecting me so deeply when I first studied it at Indiana. And it's always kind of this imprint about how powerful 
techniques like that can be when you take a familiar tune and then twist it a little bit. And I think it's worth pointing out that John Williams is basically a musical grandson of this entire tradition of late romantic composers like Gustav Mahler, like Richard Wagner, who um, was kind of the king of light motifs in his operas. And the early film composers in the 1930s, like Max Steiner and Eric Wolfgang Korngold, who themselves were post-romantic era musicians and grew up listening to the music of Wagner, Mahler, and Strauss. The solo Star Wars story soundtrack is a high octane adventure that showcases the endless talents of John Powell with original music from John Williams. And we hear all of these ebullient rhythms and super creative orchestration. And what I think is really fun is this rapidly changing landscape of music that matches the emotional tenor on screen in really exacting detail. This film score is a must have for your playlist. Our film music maven, Dr. Scott Stewart, sharing some Star Wars soundtrack highlights. We'll return with more of that conversation after a short break. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's get back to my conversation with WABE music contributor, Dr. Scott Stewart. We've been discussing the marvelous scores of the Star Wars movies. John Williams composed music for Star Wars starting in 1977 and finished with the ninth film, The Rise of Skywalker, in 2019. How fortunate are we that this man has had good health and such productivity, such amazing creativity well into his 80s. Director George Lucas has periodically edited and updated the original trilogy, but the Williams soundtrack has remained largely untouched with just a few notable exceptions. That's right. And I don't dip into Star Wars fandom online too often. But what I do, I notice that um, individuals become very passionate and very emotional about changes that are made into the Star Wars canon. (laughs) And so I won't dive into those, but um, one of the most significant musical changes that was made over time was in Return of the Jedi. So this is the 1983 film that was the end of the first trilogy. So it's technically film number six, even though we viewed it as the third film. And so in the finale, the Rebel Alliance, which has been led by Luke and Leia and Han, defeat the Emperor and the Imperial forces. They've destroyed the second Death Star. And they're holding a celebration reunion down on the forest moon of Endor, home of the Ewoks. Now, the Ewoks are a whole nother discussion, (laughs) but they're very cute, little fuzzy teddy bear. I think I've seen them described as mammaloids, and I'm not sure if that's an actual word, but I'm just going to 
get past this. So John Williams scored this big celebration. And keep in mind, you know, we've been watching about 20 minutes of battle scene and high tension. So this is this um, relaxation following all of that. And the music cue is called the Ewok celebration. So this is this quirky kind of tribal piece, which includes lyrics in Ewokese. The Ewok language. Um, the song is kind of subtitled Yub Nub. And I actually, <laughs> I'm just going to admit this in public. When I was in pet band in high school, there was an arrangement of the Ewok celebration for like basketball band. And we all had to learn the lyrics to Yub Nub oh. in the Ewok language. I don't have any cassette tape recording of that to prove it, but. <laughs> that happened <laughs> at least you weren't expected to sing it with a saxophone in your mouth right exactly so here's a little bit of the ewok celebration from the return of the jedi This cue is a clear energy dispersion following this epic battle to destroy the second Death Star. We had the death of Darth Vader and the culmination of this big original trilogy. The music was light and fun, but it didn't have much gravitas for the end of our big space Western experience. So when the original Star Wars trilogy was digitally remastered for the special edition releases in 1997, George Lucas asked John Williams to replace the Ewok celebration with a more satisfying celebration from the original one. This took the form of the victory celebration. Star Wars fans will remember that in 2004, additional scenes of celebrations all over the galaxy were added to the end of Return of the Jedi. Darth Vader's Force Ghost replaced character actor Sebastian Shaw with Hayden Christensen. That's another little hot debate <laughs> section on the internet. And all in all, uh, with a kind of Afro-Caribbean template and a large angelic chorus, this seems to lend itself to a more spiritually satisfying ending. 
I also include the familiar tag that we hear at the top of all end credits because it's actually a series of descending minor seconds or half steps, little notes in the piano that are right next to each other. And if you played them upside down on a low instrument, you'd hear the theme from Jaws. Coincidence? Hmm. <laughs> it's actually that melodic snippet that composer Kevin Kiner used to generate his very short introduction for the wildly successful Cartoon Network series, Star Wars The Clone Wars, which first aired in 2008. This was the first animated Star Wars venture, which told the story between movies two and three. That's the introduction to Star Wars Clone Wars. Kevin Kiner took the Star Wars music world into new directions, honoring the legacy and a few themes of John Williams and the big Hollywood orchestra, while adding a good deal of electronic overlay into the mix. So there's a lot of music in all of cartoons, and this is no exception. Check out this cue from season one called Obi-Wan to the Rescue. In that short burst, we hear what could be cyberpunk, a really hard rock guitar, some synth pads, orchestral strings and brass, and electronic percussion all packed into a really short action cue. This is clearly a new direction, a new kind of sound palette for the Star Wars music world, but one that I think marries really well with the fast-paced animated storytelling of this particular series. Kevin Kiner's a really super skilled and creative force. I'm really looking forward to more music from him. Yeah. The most recent Star Wars spinoff has a little Western swagger. It's the tale of the Mandalorian set after the fall of the Empire, but before the final three Star Wars installments and the rise of the First Order. John Favreau is the creator, and Pedro Pascal plays the title character. We cannot forget the rise to stardom by Grogu, known by fans as Baby Yoda. <laughs> yes. Disney Plus really hit the jackpot with this series. And, you know, right place, right time. Season two hit, you know, the middle of the pandemic when all of us were binge streaming <laughs> so yes. get, got some extra coverage in there but a really interesting soundtrack and again a uh, veering off of the the kind of the main path that was established by john williams for the star wars musical world composer ludwig Göransson, who's known for his work on black panther scored the main title and the soundtrack for the two seasons the music is less Williamsy, I guess, but more in the vein of film composer Ennio Morricone. I I hear more 
edge, a little grit, and there's a significant tech presence in addition to a large studio orchestra. Here's a little bit of the very familiar main title. from The Mandalorian by composer Ludwig Göransson. Lois, it would take us about 18 hours to listen to all of John Williams's Star Wars soundtracks, which I'm very willing to do, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> and John Williams, who is 89 this year and still going strong, has left this indelible imprint on world culture with music that is beautifully married to film, but it's also enjoyable to listen to by itself, and it's really fun to play and conduct. It's gratifying that John Williams has paved the way for Star Wars music to grow and evolve as more and more of these stories are told in different kinds of ways. Happy, happy Star Wars Day, May the 4th, be with us all. Dr. Scott Stewart is our North Star for film music, a guiding star for all music. He is a WABE music contributor and host of Strike Up the Band. Scott Stewart is on the music faculty at the Westminster Schools, lucky students, and conductor of the Atlanta Youth Wind Symphony. Thank you so much. Thanks, Lois. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. And I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to member-supported W-A-B-E, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wab.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.